Okay. We have um, here our next guest. Thank you. In 1998, I was living in Austin, Texas, and I was having therapy for the first time, and I really, really, really hated my therapist. Um, <laughs> he had very thick-soled orthopedic shoes, <laughs> and when we had therapy, he would cross his legs, and I would, I would look, at the, the look at the soles and look at his lips, and I would just hate him because they were very similar. Um, <laughs> And I, I, ended, I ended it after just a few weeks. Um, and in our final session, uh, he gave me a list. It was sort of like a reading list for being a better person. I was just like, oh, I hate this list. And, um, and he, he gave me the list. And among all the self-help was books like Angela's Ashes. Fun, fun. <laughs> um, and at, at the bottom of it, with a big sign saying avoid, was John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> So what did I do? I immediately saw uh, John Waters and I saw the film Pink Flamingos. John Waters is a filmmaker, actor, writer, journalist, visual artist, art collector, and pervert. Um, <laughs> from his unlikely base in Baltimore, he has elevated trash to an art form as stars as diverse as divine. Patty Hearst, Johnny Depp, and Kathleen Turner, who we were talking about in the interview. Yeah, she's great. Um, and he gave us hairspray. <laughs> His new book, Role Models, is a pie-in um, to, to influential people in his life, and they're very diverse. They range from St. Catherine of Siena to, to Zorro to the man that he's going to talk to about tonight. So please welcome to the final salon of the year, John Waters! Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to read the chapter uh, called uh, The Kindness of Strangers about Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams saved my life. As a 12-year-old boy in suburban Baltimore, I would look up his name in the card catalog at the library, and it would read, Sea Librarian. <laughs> I wanted these Sea Librarian books, and I wanted them now. But in the late 50s, and sadly even today, there was no way that a warped adolescent like myself could get his hands on one. But I soon figured out that the Sea Librarian books were on a special shelf behind the counter. So when the kindly librarian was helping the normal kids with their book reports, I snuck behind the checkout desk and stole the first book I wanted on my own. One Arm Read the Forbidden Cover, a short story collection by Tennessee Williams that I later found out had been only available in an expensive limited edition sold under the counter in special bookshops before <laughs> New Directions released the hardback version in 1954. And now it was mine. Of course, I knew who Tennessee Williams was. He was the bad man because the nuns in Catholic Sunday school had told us we'd all go to hell if we saw that movie he wrote, Baby Doll. The one with the great ad campaign of Carol Baker in the crib sucking her thumb that made Cardinal Spellman have a nationwide hissy fit. I cut out that ad from the Baltimore Sun countless times and pasted it in my secret scrapbook hoping to one day own a dirty movie theater. <laughs> I, I plan to show Baby Doll for the rest of my life, attracting, <laughs> attracting the wrath of the Pope and causing a scandal in my parents' neighborhood. Yes, Tennessee Williams was my childhood friend. I yearned for a bad influence, and Tennessee was one in the best sense of the word. Joyous, alarming, sexually confusing, and dangerously funny. 
I didn't quite get desire in the black masseur when I read it in one arm, but I hoped I would one day. The thing I did know after finishing the book was that I didn't have to listen to the lies the teacher told us about society's rules. I didn't have to worry about fitting in with a crowd I didn't want to hang out with in the first place. <laughs> no, there was another world that Tennessee Williams knew about, a universe filled with special people who didn't want to be a part of this dreary conformist life that I had been told I had to join. I followed his career like a hawk. Maybe I like bad Tennessee Williams just as much as good. Naturally, his better-known classic plays are important to me, but I must confess, I'm drawn more to the supposedly second-rate work. Sorry, I like Alvin and the Chipmunks better than the Beatles. <laughs> Jane Mansfield more than Marilyn Monroe. And for me, the Three Stooges are way funnier than Charlie Chaplin. And while I knew there, was, there really was a streetcar that ran for years in New Orleans toward the neighborhood of Desire, and that destination was printed above the exterior front windshield, I get more of a kick today riding the city bus named Desire. There really is one, <laughs> now that the streetcar itself has been retired. Was Tennessee Williams nuts to reveal everything about his personal life when he wrote later in life, or was he just high? <laughs> Would his longtime agent, Audrey Woods, with whom he sadly broke in 1971, have put her foot down and stopped him from burying his soul in print if she had still been in charge of his career? Since 1955, I have written, usually under artificial stimulants, Tennessee admits in memoirs, before adding, aside from the true stimulant of my deep-rooted need to write. Did Tennessee ever really get over the 60s, which he called my stoned age? To know me is not to love me, he concedes, remembering the seven-year depression he went into after the death by lung cancer of his longtime boyfriend, Frank Merlo. I'm about to fall down, Tennessee announced to whoever was present in those years, and almost nobody, nobody ever caught me. When Tennessee suddenly is level-headed, it can come as a complete surprise. I have never doubted the existence of God, he writes soberly before later confessing a disbelief in the after-existence. His guarded optimism always seemed to save the day. Mornings, I love you so much, he enthuses, celebrating their triumph over the night. Self-pity? Never. I've had a wonderful and terrible life, and who wouldn't cry for myself? Would you? Hardly. Is it possible to be a dirty old man in your mid-30s, Tennessee wonders? <laughs> remembering his very active sex life, a kind of sex life that we are much more used to reading about in memoirs today than we were then. Baby, this one's for you, he tells himself whenever Mr. Right Now appears. <laughs> he may be the only Pulitzer Prize winner to write about A200, a product used to rid your body of crab lice. <laughs> he has standards, too. The way I feel tonight, I could fuck a snake, a young sailor confides to Tennessee one night in a gay bar. And I am proud to say that I told him to go snake hunting, Tennessee writes. <laughs> Tennessee falls in love a lot, too. I have a funny heart. Sometimes it thrives on punishment, he concedes. What other memoir beside his has loneliness listed in the index? He also loved Provincetown just as much as I did. Not only did he meet two of his best boyfriends there and Tallulah Bankhead, he wrote the line, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers while holed up in a cabin before the summer season began. I hitchhiked to Provincetown in 1964 just because someone told me, it's a weird place. And God, were they right. 
A very gay place, but a different kind of gay. I may be queer, but I am this, I remember thinking. <laughs> Suppose Tennessee Williams had lived. What if he hadn't choked on that prescription drug bottle cap that he supposedly used as a launching pad for his meds? Would he have had a second wind in his career like Edward Alvey? Or would he have despaired and crumbled further when the AIDS epidemic hit and wiped out many of his new younger friends? Surely he would be appalled at the end of trade as he knew it. But would he be like some of the older gay men I see in one-time hustler bars in Baltimore now who wait for these tough guys even knowing they will never come? Would Tennessee have teamed up with Paul Morrissey? I would like him to make a film of one of my short stories Tennessee has written, and who knows? Maybe these two mavericks could have reinvented each other as a pair in the same way Douglas Sirk and Fassbender did. Most important, could Tennessee have ever really hit bottom and gotten sober once and for all? On the wagon, would he have been able to continue to think up the best titles in the history of theater the way he always had? Even with all the substance abuse, Tennessee seemed to age well and remain cheerfully handsome. But if he had reached his late 70s, would he have ruined it all by getting a facelift? <laughs> Could anyone have saved Tennessee? Critics, fans, tricks, we his readers? One thing is for sure, flattery would have gotten us nowhere. When people have spoken to me of genius, he writes with a wink, I have felt an inside pocket to make sure my wallet's still there. <laughs> I never met Tennessee Williams, but I saw him once at the Pier House restaurant in Key West, surrounded by admirers, looking a little woozy, and decided maybe this wasn't the time for us to be introduced. Nobody has to meet Tennessee Williams. All you have to do is reread his work. Listening to what he has to say could save your life, too. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to take some questions. I'm sure there are lots. Of course, the first one's from Sylvia. So I, I think the question is, is that you now clearly are who you are and where you are. If you were talking to your 16-year-old self, what mm -hmm. would you say? Well, right? the one thing I've learned from being old is that everyone is cute when they're young. <laughs> wait till you look at your old pictures of yourself no matter how bad you think when you're old think god I look pretty good <laughs> so um, I'm not so sure some people don't think they're cool when they're young um, I, I don't know what I thought when I was young I was a really crazy kid but I had parents that made me feel safe and that is the only reason I'm not in prison it's the <laughs> only thing I write about a really two really what society think were really bad mothers in this book and yet their kids turned out fine because they knew their parents loved them even if they were completely insane so if you can make your kids know that you love them that's all that really matters that's why I'm for abortion because if you can't make your kids love you they'll grow up and kill me <laughs> I'll take the question from the lady perching here. Uh. She, she said, thanks to you, I married a sexual deviant, <laughs> which was a point. And then the question yeah. was, when Congratulations. you... Congratulations. <laughs> 
And then the point, the question was, when you, mar- when, when you had John Travolta in a dress, was well, that like the height of your career? Here's the thing. I didn't get John Travolta in the dress because I didn't. Adam Shankman directed that hairspray. But mm. I did help him. Do, uh, certainly, I called Physically John Travolta before <laughs> the movie and didn't talk him into it, but talked him about why Edna should be a man and all that. And he was very, and I think I did help him get in it. And that movie would have never been made without John Travolta. He got the movie financed. Mm. And um, he was lovely. I got along with him great. Um, so, um, and I think he reinvented the part too. I think Divine played it in a very realistic way on Broadway. Harvey did a great job, but he didn't imitate Divine. He did it like, uh, hear him singing on Broadway in the last row. And John Travolta played it like a Playboy bunny that got fat later. Which happens. <laughs> so um, I, I think each time it got reinvented, and that's why it worked. But um, I'll right. take one more question from the man who's going to fall over if he doesn't get to ask it. I saw you at the um, anti-pope visit. Yes, I was at the anti-pope visit. Yes, it was fun. Except it was so mild. When I told you when I heard the big lesbian yell, what do we want? And they yelled, rational thought. <laughs> That's not exactly the Panthers. Yeah. 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 Well, so I, what would you have said if you were on the podium? I would have said about the Pope. I would have said, "Do you believe now?" He said, "Like, um, male hustlers can wear rubbers." What? <laughs> I don't think Get he used the word better hustler. advisors. <laughs> I mean, that's so wrong-headed. What he's thinking, you know. I would, I would, you know, I'm against. I wouldn't do violence. I'm for pie the Pope. Ruin his outfit. You know, um, <laughs> embarrass our enemies, what the yippies did in the 60s. You know, if somebody was voting against gay marriage, send rotten drag queens to their house and yell fashion insults at their wife. <laughs> Johnny Woo, make you it, have a make rule. It, make, it, <laughs> make it humorous and personal. That's what we have to do. And make people laugh. Use, you know, gay people used to have venom with their wit. They didn't want to just live in suburbia and be married and have babies. That's fine. But well, let's be an outlaw again, too. Let's use that some, right? And on that note, John Waters, thank you very much! We return in February, and among our guests next year will be uh, James Frey. We're going to give him a hard time. Gary <laughs> Steingart. I think the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire will be here. Je- uh, Jeff Dyer, um, thank you. I will see you next year and have a lovely night. Thank you. Thank you.